Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. It's your lucky day, folks, because today we have Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio guest hosting for me, bringing all of his talent and profound interests and advocacy with him. If you don't know of Peterson's theatrical stagecraft or his piercing intellect when it comes to theological insights, you're missing out big time and should check out petersontoscano.com. But today, he's bringing us climate-specific interviews and analysis, really from all across the spectrum. Peterson will connect us today with a climate activist from Cameroon, West Africa, and also with a lawyer working on women's and indigenous rights, and who is also a playwright, so you'll hear a bit about her dramatic work. And then, Peterson helps with some insights from a Latino professor of history and Latinx studies about the overlap of Latino and Republican values and voting. And keep in mind the importance of dealing with climate change as bipartisan work. There's more, but you get the idea. Citizens Climate Radio and Peterson Toscano bring a treasure trove of culture and change-making to spirit in action. So it's over to you, Peterson. Take it away. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be back. In today's show, you will hear an original radio drama called Tell Me a Story. It's the story climate advocate Ellie Sparks wrote for herself when she felt uncertain about the future. Her story provides deep wisdom and a moving vision of the future. You will also hear my interview with Geraldo Quedava. He wrote the book The Hispanic Republican, the shaping of an American identity from Nixon to Trump. But first, I share two stories about land rights and land sovereignty. You will meet climate advocate Jacques Kengio from Cameroon and Mary Catherine Nagel, a lawyer and playwright from the Cherokee Nation. Sometimes I connect with a fellow climate action figure and walk away both encouraged and challenged. That's exactly what happened when I interviewed Jacques Kengio. The way I look at myself is within my community, I like to give back every bit that I can to sustain other people and to just contribute in that way. Originally from Cameroon, he's currently completing his doctorate studies in the USA. I grew up in the city of Douala, which is in the, in the littoral region of Cameroon. That's just on the uh, western coast of, of Cameroon. When I was in Cameroon, I studied um, geography in the undergraduate level. I always went to school because my dad wanted me to go to school. It's a normal African cultural mindset. Your parents work really hard, they send you to school, and they want you to succeed because the only way to succeed, in their opinion, is to give a child an education Jacques engages in the world around him and draws from a well of gratitude that fuels the work he does. I generally volunteer a lot in the community um, services, the community kitchen, for example, is something I do a lot, just give my time to, to help homeless people, um, people that, are short, that have food insecurities, to just be there and serve them food. 
I'm very engaged in the climate movement and, and that's also part of my activism that I do. In brief, I just see myself as someone who, who really cares and wants to give back to because he has gotten so much. Jacques has emerged as a citizen's climate leader, both in the USA and in French-speaking Africa. He will tell us more about this work in a moment. Jacques' passion for climate justice comes directly from his personal experience. He and his family faced environmental injustice at the hands of greedy politicians and businessmen. The reason I decided to focus on environmental studies with a focus on government-driven land dispossessions with an angle on land policy reforms is because, personally, my family and a neighborhood of over 3,000 people had to suffer the consequences of discriminatory land policies that were written without a keen interest in serving the communities. In 2014, what we witnessed in our little neighborhood of Mabanda within the city of Douala was we basically lost our land and, and property to a government land authority who basically evicted us from our area. And mark you, all the residents in this area had land titles. And so when you're evicted, all of a sudden you find yourself homeless and hopeless. And there is no sort of guarantee for a future because there's no compensation or relocation assistance provided to you, you begin to question the system in operation and if that system is designed to serve the community members or to serve some specific individuals. And so when that happened to my family, I felt deeply hurt by what happened and I decided to do something about it. Land ownership can become complicated and complex in Cameroon, especially when it is considered tribal land. Tribal chiefs have authority in deciding who holds the right to live on a lot in tribal lands. But as Jacques and his family discovered, the chief is not always the final authority. These people who migrated from the hinterlands of Cameroon, like their villages, they came to Douala to look for economic opportunities. And so upon their arrival, what they found were indigenous chiefs of Douala who were selling lands in different areas, these chiefs not only sold the lands, but somehow found a way to direct these people that were wanting to buy lands to authorities where they could actually certify the land that they were buying. So these people were able to, to gain land titles. Why would the government take the land of these people? You know, at the time, what they gave us as a reason was that these people had congregated in this area without knowing that these lands were reserved for government projects. Granted, these were wetland areas within the, the littoral zone of, of Douala. If these people were able to get land titles in these areas that were supposedly supposed to be reserved because protected areas, as, as the government said, why were they able to gain land titles? And if these land titles were in, in fact legitimate, why were these people evicted without compensation? So I think there's a there's an interplay here with, between poor governance, but also a lack of transparency in terms of how and what are the legal routes for land ownership. As far as Jacques and his family understood, they legally had the right to occupy the land, yet they were forced off of it without compensation. 
Since the government designated the area as a wetlands region, Jacques assumed it would remain unsettled and developed as an ecological-rich site. Like I said, they told us that the lands were protected because they were wetlands. But it's funny because today, on those same wetlands, the government is actually putting those lands to industrial development. As we speak right now, there's actually heavy industrial development going on in that area, Mabanda area, as we speak right now. So it's very interesting to know that you can displace community, low-income communities from their land and claim that the land was never supposed to be there because they were protected lands, but then you find a way to install corporate industries in these areas that were allegedly protected because they were in, in um, wetland areas. So, yeah. Jacques sees how his fellow Cameroonians do not always have the luxury to think about climate change. Cameroonians feel climate change is a bigger topic that they can hand, that they can really care about right now. These this people don't work around climate change, obviously, but their focus is probably elsewhere, especially right now with a lot of political unrest and civil uprisings going on right now. Cameroon is not necessarily a manufacturing country for per se because it's basically we have the natural resources they are tapped out in Cameroon and shipped for processing elsewhere. And so Cameroonians would tell you that their carbon footprint is not as high as a huge Western power like the United States, for example, because there's no heavy coal power plants being operated that would pollute mega millions of tons of, of carbon in the atmosphere. The country of Cameroon cannot make a huge difference on the global stage when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But the United States is another story. And it was in the U.S. that Jacques first learned about Citizens Climate Lobby. I am particularly involved with Citizens Climate Lobby. I have been involved since 2016. Because once I came to the United States in 2015, I started thinking about climate change, reading articles and just watching documentaries in general. I think one of the most fascinating documentaries that I watched was on Facing the Surge, the documentary that really resonated with me, that the description of the flooding events, the sea rise level really resonated with me because, again, Douala is a coastal city and that sort of made me really, really interested about how this correlated with what was going on in Douala. I really wanted to get involved. I really wanted to learn more about what, you know, what climate change was and what was being done in general to really fix this. And so I went to Google. Google has all the answers. And so I just started looking for like groups because I wanted to talk to someone about it. And so I found CCL online. And I reached out, I went to an advocate training. I immediately was signed up with a local chapter. I went to a meeting and I started seeing people, you know, of different age groups just sitting there, volunteers, and just talking to one another about, you know, how they could change, you know, this whole idea of climate change. And they were talking about carbon pricing. I was, I, I never even heard anything. I never knew what that was. Like, what is carbon pricing? What is that all about? Talking about carbon bills that were going to be submitted to Congress. To me, it just felt really ambiguous. And it was just very, very difficult for me to understand any of it. Jacques discovered that the average American can connect directly with members of Congress and their staff. He could hardly believe it. I'm from Cameroon. I've never had the opportunity to meet with a member of my parliament because access to government authorities in Cameroon is very, very hard because they regard themselves highly. It's possible to do it, but you have to open, you know, you have to go to certain extremes like grabbing someone and doing certain things to get to have to sit with someone 
to make them act on policies. So that to me was really interesting that you could fit with individuals that were going to plan a meeting with a member of Congress. Now, while completing his studies in the USA, Jacques is also connecting with CCLers in Africa. During the 2018 CCL Climate Conference, International Climate Conference, I officially met um, Cathy Orlando for the first time. Um, I also met a very good friend of mine and collaborator in Africa, David Michael, who has done amazing work in around the climate movement in, in Africa. What a great guy. A conversation started, and then, so they identified the opportunity to create or to start a CCL chapter for French-speaking African countries. He felt like there was a need to get someone working with him that understood the French language and could easily communicate the CCL laser talks with them, could train them in French and could really be that person to lead them. We started the, the different groups in French Africa. We, we had some countries involved like Burkina Faso, the Republic of Congo, Guinea, Conakry, Togo, Senegal, and more recently, and Morocco. And so we have a, a set of maybe 10 to 12 African countries that are already on board. What I'm, what I'm noticing is that some of our leaders in the French, and, and I, this could actually be generalized within some of the English um, CCO groups as well. This whole issue of capacity, whether it's um, social capacity or financial capital, it's been really a huge issue for these groups to sustain their, their work and themselves because financial capacity has been hard for them. And there's this whole idea that if you're already struggling to, to, to feed your families, how how much of a help would you be to, to, to the climate change movement when you're struggling with other real systemic issues like poverty, for example? It was through Jacques I learned the tragic story of a CCLer named Bunwin Nyabe. A CCL volunteer in one of the Anglophone regions was, was murdered because he, he was confused to be a secessionist and, and basically was murdered. And this was someone that did so much for the climate movement in Cameroon and in Africa in general. He was an, he was an artist, a musician, and sang a lot of environmental um, songs. Um, he was actually um, on the, the African Songs Talent, um, I think, in 2018. But it's just to raise some of these issues that some of these African countries have to, have to deal with in addition to focus on the climate crisis. So the title of his song was Water Time Bomb. He was a great um, writer, a poet, like musician, just an amazing human being who cared about the environment, who cared about the climate movement. And today it's not around because there's some real issues that are going on in Cameroon. And I think it's important to highlight those things. I will end this segment of the program by playing Water Time Bomb by Bunwe Jan Nyabe. Sitting beside a fountain, but got no drop to cool my thirst. No water, water everywhere, but no drop to drink. For the streams and the springs from the mountain are getting dry every day. Public taps are crowded, and the streams are all polluted. The springs don't glittering, endangering my health. The children of the poor are drinking out of the springs. Oh, 
with forest of the poor, surviving by his grace, oh Lord. For a long time now we've ruined the earth without thinking of tomorrow. We've been playing a game, but scoring in our own goal. The frog doesn't drink up all the water in that pond where it lives. Let's reflect and save the earth now. There's no way we can live without protecting the earth. But there are ways men can live without destroying the earth. Let's reflect and save the earth now. Cause we are sitting on a time bomb every day. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We are sitting on a time bomb every day. Ooh. We are sitting on a time bomb, time bomb. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We are sitting on a time bomb every day. Now it is time for the art house. I am a partner at a small law firm where we focus on restoration of tribal jurisdiction and sovereignty for mostly for the focus or purpose of, of issues of safety for Native women. We do a lot of other federal Indian law as well. That is Mary Catherine Nagel. Featuring a lawyer focusing on women's rights and Indian law uh, no doubt catches your attention. But why feature Mary Catherine Nagel in the art house? I also am a playwright. My professional productions have been at the arena stage. In 2018, they produced my play Sovereignty. After that, my next production was Manhattan at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And then after that, the Rose Theater, which is a children's theater in Omaha, Nebraska, produced Return to Niobrara. Portland Center Stage in Portland produced Crossing Mini Shoshi. I got to have second productions of both Sovereignty and Manhattan. The Marin Theater Company produced Sovereignty, and last February, Yale Repertory Theater produced Manhattan. Mary Catherine's identity and work informs and infuses her plays. I identify as a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, as a Cherokee woman, as an American citizen, and as a woman. A lot of my work as an attorney is on the Violence Against Women Act, securing its reauthorization and further securing the restoration of tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians so that our tribal governments can exercise that jurisdiction and protect Native women on tribal lands. In 1978, the United States Supreme Court eliminated tribal criminal jurisdiction over any crimes committed by non-Indians on tribal lands. That's been devastating. It'd be like telling the state of Idaho, you don't get to exercise any criminal jurisdiction over anyone who's not a citizen of Idaho if they come into Idaho and commit a crime. It's absurd. And that's what was told to our tribal nations. And that's, I think, a large reason why we have the highest rates of crime. Native women are the most likely in the country out of any population to be raped, murdered, sex trafficked, kidnapped. It's a crisis. With that in mind, changing the law is critical. It is everything, but you can't really just change the law. I mean, you 
write briefs until we're blue in the face and make our arguments, and we certainly do, there is an inherent prejudice against tribal jurisdiction, against the legitimacy of our tribal governments, of our tribal courts, and I think a devaluation of Native women's lives and bodies and autonomy means we really have to change people's hearts and minds. We have to rehumanize Native women. And the best way to do that is the arts. Playwriting is an excellent tool for that. In her play, Sliver of Full Moon, Mary Catherine Nagel gave body and voice to these struggles in a powerful and unconventional way. Based on hours of interviews, Sliver Full Moon presents stories of Native women, including the violence and injustices they face on tribal lands. Mary Catherine provides a platform for these women to share their own stories directly. What we usually do is they perform their own stories and they have it written out and they can read literally from the script or sometimes they go off book a little bit and just sort of tell their own story. That's a really different experience than having an actress read someone's story and obviously, you know, it's very powerful when you have good actors sharing stories, but there's also just no no comparison to hearing a story directly from someone who lived through it. That's really the power of Silver Full Moon, but also, you know, the reason why it is not produced in professional theater settings. Instead of bringing an audience into a theater to see the play, they bring the play directly to places where people of influence can be moved by these stories. Sliver Full Moon's been performed at several law schools. In fact, the American Bar Association just hosted a reading of it on November 20th. Uh, we've done it um, at the United Nations in the chapel of the United Nations in New York. We've done it um, in high school, like at a high school theater at the um, on the reservation for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. We've done it in casinos on reservations. We've done it you know, all over the country, pretty much everywhere except inside a mainstream professional theater. And so I take real stories. Um, I've been honored and blessed to take real stories. I mean, the reason I get to work with real stories are because women like Lisa Bruner and Diane Millich and Billy Joe Rich and, you know, Melissa Brady and Nettie Warbelow, they trust me with them. They're, you know, they're their stories, but they're very powerful because they're true. You know, most theaters in the United States have never produced a play by a Native person. Most Hollywood studios aren't producing Native content written by Native people. So we're also a little bit out of sight, out of mind. And when we do come to mind, it's a stereotype. Like, you know, thankfully the Washington football team changed its name, but we have a lot of work to do to rehumanize Native people. Putting these true stories out there is a, is a first step in that, in that process. Mary Catherine Nagel sees a recurring pattern with both the violence perpetuated against Native women and the ways people in power violate the land. A very special connection between Native women and the earth. It's a cultural connection. It's based on tradition and, and religious beliefs and an understanding of balance that land is not something to be conquered. It's not a commodity. We all understand we live in a capitalist society and we're probably not anywhere close to getting away from that. And, and that's fine, but, you know, so we can still put a dollar value on, on land, but we certainly can also build into our legal system mechanisms to protect that land and to protect the Native people who live on that land and who have lived in balance with that land for, you know, since time immemorial. When you look at what's happening in, like, the Bakken in western North Dakota, you see incredibly high rates of increasing oil extraction like at a very fast pace 
it shouldn't be surprising. It's not surprising. It's unfortunate that we see at the same time rates of violence against Native women skyrocketing in the same areas. And in large part, that's because, you know, when these industries decide, okay, we need to bring 100,000 men and put them in men, camp, men camps so we can get more oil out of the ground and make more money from fossil fuels, that many of those men are criminals they're bringing in. They don't do background checks. A lot of them under federal law should be registering as a sex offender. They don't. And they bring in drugs and alcohol. And then all of a sudden, the rates of sex trafficking, murder, kidnapping Native women are off the charts in Western North Dakota. So there's a very real connection between the damage that's done to the environment in the United States and violence against Native women. A lot of folks understand that connection and, and are working you know, to, to address both hand in hand. Mary Catherine sees a global connection with indigenous fossil fuel extraction on native lands and now the growing impacts of climate change that directly affect indigenous people. Well, you know, climate change is going to hit indigenous populations in the world, I think, the hardest and the quickest. I mean, I just think of like Kivalina in Alaska. They're a tribe in Alaska whose home is almost underwater already because of the rising sea levels. This is a modern day forced relocation for many tribal nations, especially those who are on the coast or on an island. Tribes in southern Louisiana, their entire way of life is being basically washed out. Also in Oklahoma, when I was a child, we didn't have earthquakes, but now because of all the fracking, we do. And in fact, the Pawnee Nation was hit very hard by an earthquake that was a 4.3 or 4, I think, maybe even 4.6, which, you know, it's nothing to laugh at and did, did significant damage to several government buildings there at Pawnee Nation. Tribal nations are very impacted by all these things. The tribes in California have been really impacted by the, the wildfires that are just out of control due to climate change and have been working very hard to combat those. But yeah, climate change is, is a real threat for tribal nations. If you want to learn more about the history, the people, and culture of indigenous people near where you live, Mary Catherine Nagel has a suggestion. I really recommend that folks connect with the tribal nation in their area where they're living and, and learn from that nation in terms of their traditional culture and way of life and understanding what it does, what does it mean to be in balance with the land as opposed to conquering it or commodifying it. The more we can do that, the more prepared we are going to be to face some of the environmental challenges that are coming that are coming right now. To learn more about Mary Catherine Nagel, follow her on Twitter at MKNagel. See our show notes for more links, including a New Yorker magazine feature on Mary Catherine Nagel. Find our show notes on our blog at Citizens Climate Lobby. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Stay tuned for more Spirit in Action. Geraldo Cadava will tell us about Hispanic Republicans and the diversity of political experiences of Latinos in America, plus an original radio play.
I really hate to break in on guest host Peterson Toscano, but I need to give a shout out to the many community radio stations that carry not just our programs, Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul, but also so many other wonderful, locally inspired and fueled shows. And this means music and news and perspectives largely ignored by the vast media conglomerates of our country. Community radio stations deserve your support. So dig in your pockets or wander down to your local community radio station and lend a hand. You'll find links to the 42 stations that carry our programs on northernspiritradio.org, along with a lot of links to guests and to our guest host, Peterson Toscano. A place to share comments, type harder, I can't hear you, and also on northernspiritradio.org you'll have an opportunity to donate to support us. We count on you, and you can count on us. Now, back to more riches from Citizens Climate Radio and Peterson Toscano, guest host for Spirit in Action today. Coming up, you will hear the moving story Ellie Sparks wrote for herself when she felt discouraged by inaction regarding climate change. The story, which will be presented as a radio play, has already encouraged hundreds of people in live events. But first, historian Geraldo Cadava joins us to talk about his book, The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Identity. I am an associate professor of history and Latina and Latino studies at Northwestern University. I'm also the author of The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. And he keeps getting asked the same question over and over again. How could it be that any Latino would vote for a Republican let alone a Republican like Donald Trump, who seems to have staked much of his first administration, while his only administration, on anti-immigrant policy and loud anti-immigrant rhetoric. And so I think that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And even beyond just being confusing, I think it's actually galling to a lot of people, just kind of unimaginable. It's almost like a, a moral question, someone who separated families and detained children, how, how could it be? While he understands why many are baffled by movements like Latinos for Trump, Geraldo Cadava wants to shift the discourse. I would like to start these conversations from the position that all Latinos, including Republicans, have serious and deeply held political beliefs, and we shouldn't just take them for granted as either natural Democrats or natural Republicans, as members of both parties have tried to do for a long period of time. Beyond political beliefs and voting patterns, Geraldo Cadava points out how different terms and identities are expressed by Latinos, Hispanics, and Latinx people in the USA. The history of how Hispanics or Latinos have identified is in and of itself a very interesting and long history. And so, you know, just to be brief, you know, in the mid 20th century, you might see terms like Spanish speaking Americans, or Americans of Spanish descent, or something like that. Um, You know, in the 60s and 70s, you might see Chicanos or Boricua. Those are terms that apply in particular to the kind of civil rights activists of 
Mexican-American or Puerto Rican descent, a lot of Latinos still continue to identify by their national origin. So like Mexicano or Venezolano for Venezuelans or Cubano for Cuban, all of those things. And so, you know, I think it's a long and complicated history. I, I use the term in my book Hispanic primarily because that is the term that Latino conservatives um, have preferred for a long period of time. I mean, since the beginning of their movement in the mid 20th century in the 1960s, 1970s, some of their first organizations were called Hispanic organizations. I mean, you've seen a migration to the term Latino. So like the Trump campaign, their Latino campaign was the Latinos for Trump. And so I think conservatives are comfortable with both Hispanic and Latino. It's not that those terms are synonymous. I think they ring differently for different people, but I think you can use them interchangeably. So I think that's how they get used by Republicans and conservatives in a political sense. I mean, I myself am not too dogmatic about these labels. I think that people can choose for themselves what uh, labels they use to describe themselves. And I myself am likely to use many different labels depending on the context. So Mexican-American, Panameño for Panamanian and Filipino or Latino or Hispanic, I don't feel particularly strongly about it. I think that Latinx is a term that, you know, is is one among many that Latinos use today to describe themselves. It's embraced more by youth. It's embraced more by gender non-conforming youth because the X is supposed to replace the O or the A and Spanish is a kind of gendered language. So gender neutral or uh, non-conforming genders have embraced Latinx to be their umbrella term, but I think, you know, it will be one term among many that Latinos use. In his book, The Hispanic Republican, Geraldo Cadava outlines the history of ways Republicans successfully reached out to Hispanics. In some ways, the values were first articulated by the Hispanics working for Ronald Reagan in 1980 when he ran his campaign, his first successful campaign for president. He and his Hispanic advisors kind of sat down to articulate what were the core values or characteristics of the Hispanic Republican. And they pointed to things like family values and traditional ideas about marriage and a work ethic and uh, a support for free enterprise economic policies and also anti-communism and anti-socialism. And so in a lot of ways, I think that those core values of the Hispanic Republican have remained remarkably consistent, and they were the ones highlighted by the Latinos for Trump campaign as well. So in some ways, the Trump campaign's Latinos for Trump campaign was the most traditional and predictable aspect of an otherwise kind of chaotic campaign because they were using the same playbook for recruiting Latinos. Latinos today continue to name a lot of issues they care about, even above the issue of immigration, which has long been presumed to be the main issue that motivates Latinos. So Latinos will still name things like the economy or healthcare or, you know, many other things. The economy, healthcare, education as issues they care about even more than immigration. And I think it's important to note that on those positions, there are conservative policies that they've gravitated towards. You know, the Trump campaign really foregrounded their economic successes and the tax cuts, the financial deregulations, the 
fact that Latinos had lower rates of poverty than ever before or higher rates of home ownership and family median incomes. You know, I, I say that not to, again, not to just highlight Trump's successes, but this has been the Republican Party's success among Latinos for a long period of time. So who are these Latinos voting Republican? Who are Republicans targeting? Courting small business owners has been a consistent strategy with mixed results. You know, they're a really, really diverse lot. And Latino small business owner can mean anything from, you know, a mom and pop shop with zero or one or two employees to something like Chef Jose Andres's company that employs thousands of workers. So, you know, I think that those very small businesses that, you know, like a bodega in New York or Jose Andres, who owns many restaurants, I think they can have very different interests. So I think it's complicated to talk about Latino small business owners as a, a single block. But nevertheless, yeah, I think Trump, by appealing to Latinos based on his tax cuts and deregulations and making small business loans easier to procure, I think that is certainly how the Trump campaign saw things. And what about class? Was the divide between pro-Trump and pro-Biden about class? Is it that wealthier Latinos are attracted to the business-friendly platform Republicans construct each election cycle? Yeah. So because Latino small business owners and uh, property owners and, you know, because the Trump campaign saw them as some of its prime targets when it came to recruiting Latinos, I think there is this assumption that wealthier Latinos have been more inclined to support Trump than um, those who are less wealthy. And, you know, that is certainly borne out by the numbers. I mean, there, there have been plenty of studies that found that if Latinos earn above $75,000 per year or $100,000 per year, they are more likely to um, support Republican candidates. I think this year, the statistic was that 30% of Trump's Latino support came from Latinos earning less than $100,000 a year, whereas 70% of Trump's Latino support came from Latinos earning more than $100,000 per year. So, that does tend to correlate with the idea that it's wealthier Latinos who support conservatives. But I will note that even the 30% of Latinos who earn below $100,000 per year, that is about the national average that Trump won among Latinos. So I don't know how significant that number is. And I think, you know, it's also important to consider something Latino Republicans feel a lot of confidence about right now, which is this idea that their party is poised to become the uh, party for working class non-white Americans. I have a hard time at least assuming that that's true, but it's an idea. And I think that idea is based on the fact that Trump found greater success in 2020 than he did in 2016 among working class Latinos. And so I think that that has given many Latino Republicans confidence that their party is going to become a party that represents working class Latinos as well. So I think on both of these counts that you're asking about, both of these topics, business owners and, and class, I mean, I think that, yes, it's long been assumed that wealthier Latinos skew more conservative than uh, working class Latinos. But I think that there are reasons to at least complicate that idea or question a little bit in ways that we won't necessarily know the answer to until 
2024 or later. And what about climate change? Geraldo Cadava explained that while tracking opinions around climate change and Hispanic Republicans is not the focus of his book, he was willing to share his thoughts and observations. Latinos are not unique in the sense that youth, younger people, care about the climate much more than older Americans. That is certainly true among Latino youth. I mean, the climate is an issue that they will name among their top concerns. But I think a lot of Latinos also live in areas affected by climate change in Florida and California and elsewhere. And I think that they've, you know, many have worked in agriculture or have had livelihoods that depend on agriculture. And of course, climate change affects agriculture perhaps more than other industries. And I also think that climate refugees are an important topic of conversation and climate refuge. And we know that a lot of Latin American sending countries in Central America, Mexico, elsewhere have been really devastated by climate change and sent a lot of Latin American migrants moving toward the United States. So I think the climate, you know, there's a lot of reasons that Latinos care about it. In terms of what Hispanic Republicans have told me, I guess I can say a couple of things. I think I would tell you first, I guess, about the first Hispanic Secretary of the Interior, a guy named Manuel Lujan, who was a Mexican-American from New Mexico. I think the Republican position long has been, and this was certainly his position, has been, you know, a balanced approach to climate change and conservation. So coming from New Mexico, what that meant was protecting federal lands and conserving the environment at the same time that you open up land for economic development, you know, quote unquote, responsibly. And so a balanced approach between economic development and conservation, I think, was for a long time the pretty kind of mainstream Republican response to issues of the environment. I was recently talking also with a guy named Daniel Garza, who's the head of the Libre Initiative, a kind of free enterprise grassroots organization funded by the Koch brothers. And we were talking about Latino Republicans. And his point really had to do with how questions are framed more than anything else. And how, from his perspective, Democratic-leaning think tanks or polling organizations ask questions in a way that frames the issues more to their liking, but not necessarily in a neutral way. So the example he used, though, was about climate. And what he said was that, sure, you know, if you ask any Latino, do they care about the environment? And do you want to protect the environment? They're all going to say yes. I mean, everyone cares about the environment. Everyone wants to protect the environment. But then he went on to say, but if you ask a Latino, are you willing to protect the environment if it comes at a cost of trillions of dollars, then the response is going to be much more mixed. To me, that kind of summed up how Latino Republicans feel about this issue because, yeah, sure, they want to protect the environment, but we, we've long known that it's been like uh, a talking point of Republicans for the past two or three decades that protecting the environment necessarily comes at a cost to workers and economic growth. And I think that um, many have tried to complicate that idea, but it's been a pretty persistent idea held by uh, Latinos and all Republicans. 
you know, in, in general, I think that this is one of the ideas that we always need to keep at the front of our mind when it comes to thinking about partisan politics is that parties are not static. They, they do change. They do respond to events on the ground and they respond to the successes and failures of previous election cycles. So I would expect, you know, the conservative position to evolve on this as well. So going back to the question, he's always asked, how could any Latino vote for Donald Trump? Both parties have tried to paint Latinos as either natural Republicans or natural Democrats. And I just don't think that that's how Latino partisan identity or anyone's partisan identity forms. I think partisan identity has more to do with history and conversations with your family and your community. And so it's a product of history. It it evolves over time rather than being something that we are naturally from birth. That's why I wanted to write the Hispanic Republican. And I, I do hope that going forward and one lesson of this election might be that we need to hear and listen to all Latinos and take seriously what their political beliefs are. So we're not surprised by how they vote next time. The book is The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity, From Nixon to Trump. It is written by Geraldo Cadava, and it's available in print, digitally on Kindle, and as an audiobook through Audible. Now it is time for the art house. Over 10 years ago, a woman in Virginia was struggling to make sense of climate change. Ellie Sparks told me the story about how that summer in Virginia, it was insanely hot. She remembers being in the community pool, and when she popped her head out of the water, the water evaporated so quickly she felt downright cold. She also remembers walking with co-workers to the cafeteria and thinking, Why in the world are none of these people alarmed about climate change? She was really struggling. So she wrote a story for herself. Tell Me a Story is a conversation between a parent and a child, a story within a story. Ellie, who is now Citizens Climate Lobby's Director of Field Development, has shared the story with friends, fellow climate advocates, and at public gatherings. She gave me permission to turn the story into a short radio play. Tell Me a Story is performed by Zeke and Anna Loomis Weber. Tell me a story, Mama. Sure. Which one? The story about the time Earth nearly lost her people. Okay, I'll tell you that one. That's a good story. A long time ago, Earth was filled with people, from north to south and east to west. They had different religions, or none at all. They looked alike, or not at all. Mostly, they got along and lived with love. However, some of the people were afraid. Afraid of what, Mama? Afraid of other people. Afraid of not having enough. Afraid of change. Afraid to lose. The people who were afraid of others stuck their fingers in their ears and hummed so they couldn't hear other people talking to them. The people who were afraid of not having enough took more than they needed. They took more trees than they needed. They took more fish than they needed. They took more land than they needed. They also took things from deep in the earth, 
things that should have stayed in the earth. What did they take from deep inside the earth, Mama? Back in the old days, so long ago, people took coal, oil, and natural gas from inside the earth. They burned these up to make things move, to build things, and to power things. They took many things. However, the biggest problem was the fossil fuels. Although it was powerful energy, it came at a heavy price. What happens when you burn something, darling? Things get hot. That's right. Burning those things that came from deep inside the earth made the world hotter. It also made it dirty and bad for breathing. They didn't notice at first. Earth is so big, and the people weren't burning much. But over time, they burned more, and Earth grew hot. The scientists noticed. They shaped their alarm with the leaders and the people. A hot Earth would mean trouble. Now, remember those people with their fingers in their ears? The people who took more than they needed because they were afraid? Yes, Mama. It was so hard for those people to listen to the scientists. Their arms were wrapped tightly around their stuff. They had jammed their fingers in their ears. They were humming loudly, too loudly sometimes, even for other people to hear the scientists, or listen to ideas about how to change. They were also scared to change. Like you were scared to go to a new school, remember? Yeah, but then I made new friends, and I like how colorful Miss Monica makes the classroom. These people were scared and didn't want to move to something new. Unfortunately, they burned coal, oil, and natural gas more furiously. Earth changed. Trees caught fire and whole forests burned up. Rivers dried up. Valleys and lowlands flooded. Seawater rose up. Whole continents changed, many islands vanished, and fresh water turned salty. As oceans warmed, fish died. As air warmed, plants died. Without plants to eat, many animals and people died. It was a scary time, especially for those willing to look at the problem straight in the face. Finally, the day came when those who hoarded and hummed with their fingers in their ears let their guard down and realized an ancient truth, one shared by all of the religions and those with none. Do you know what that truth is, darling? We are all connected. That's right. We are connected. People, animals, earth, trees, water, rain, oceans. Mama? Yes, sweetheart? Mama. The people who took more fish and trees than they needed. Tell me again, what did they finally do? They let down their guard and surrendered to love. They worked with the others. Within 20 years, people stopped burning fuel and started harvesting other energy. 20 years is a long time. In 20 years, you may be a parent yourself. In 20 years, I may even be a grandparent. It was hard to stay focused for 20 years. Different leaders came and went. But the people knew what they wanted, and they kept pressure on the leaders to leave. Your great-grandmother was one of those people who spoke to the leaders. She knew what she wanted, and she let them know, year after year. She was kind, respectful, and determined. She was loud when she needed to be. She was also gently persistent. She had all of the qualities which Papa and I want you to have. That's why we gave her name to you. I know, Mama. I wish I could have met her. Me too. It will take a long time for Earth to heal from the damage done by so much dirty energy. You and I will be long gone. Many generations will pass before things are back in balance again. 
But by keeping the switch from burning energy to harvesting it, we've given Earth a chance to keep her people. It's time for bed, my little flower. Good night, Mama. Good night. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. You've been listening to Selected Highlights from Citizens Climate Radio. Our show is available wherever you get podcasts. I'm Peter Santoscano. Feel free to email me directly, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we have a solution that will greatly reduce pollution, which leads to climate change. We believe that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference. We want to tell you about it. Visit cclusa.org. That's cclusa.org usa.org. Thank you, Mark, for having me on the show. Back to you. You're welcome, Peterson. It's always great to have you here on Spirit in Action. It's really an honor. And folks, we've got those links that Peterson just mentioned on our site, northernspiritradio.org to make it easy for you to connect up and to join in the work and fun of making this planet a better place for all of us. We'll be back next week with more goodies and inspirations, so tune in then for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our